come each week and be hungry to learn about what you can do possibly to develop your family and to strengthen it and to make it more viable in this world, especially as we enter into the holiday season. So before we do a quick little prayer here, I'm going to read to you uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 through 10. I want to tell you that this is a topic that I've only talked about in one time in 27 years of ministry, and I don't know why it's been so few. Um, but it's mentioned 80 times throughout the scriptures, 83 times, 65 Old Testament, 38 New Testament. Is that right? Something like that. Don't check my math. But we're going to talk about widows today. Now, typically, whenever I get a message like this, it either, um, either it's because there is something in me that needs it, or I'm anticipating that God is putting it on my mind because there's someone here who needs to hear it. Now, as I've been playing out with these various weeks, uh, widows was going to come down the road, but God said, no, you're going to do that one today. This one's coming first. So it's possible that whoever needs this is here today. And if that be the case, just know that our prayers are with you. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows, and there is a list, I guess, unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. May God's blessings be in our reading and our understanding of these words. So let's pray real quick, all right? Father, this may be a tough topic for some of us. Maybe the wounds are still fresh in us. Maybe the concerns are overwhelming to us. But we pray that this is perfectly timed in your divine providence. I pray that you will speak to each of us according to our individual situations as it pertains to our own families. But Lord, I also pray that you'll dig deeper within us so that we will see how this plays out in the church family. Because, Lord, there's probably some needs that may be overlooked. So we repent of our overlooking and pray for your correction. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. So a couple verses in this little passage I want to highlight to you. Verse 3 says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And, of course, the implication and the passage supports this that there is an implication that there are some widows who are really not in need 
as are some other widows. Uh, this is a, a, a very difficult topic. I was going through my mental list, and I think that I've come up with a list of nine people in our church family who would be classified as widows. A lot of those, some of those, you may not even know who they are. But yet we still have a responsibility to them because of their connection to the church family. And it, and it just causes me to wonder, are we doing a good job of helping meet the needs of those people. Now, there's a couple of things that are underlying here. One, I remember when I was working for hospice in Morton, Illinois, and uh, I had a patient. Her name was Charlene. She was a resident at one of the nursing homes. And I remember visiting her on a couple occasions. She wasn't a very nice lady, um, which could be why she never had visitors. I don't know. That's just judgmental and speculative. But the fact is, she wasn't very friendly to me. But anyway, I continued to persist and continue to visit her, and I didn't know what her, her diagnosis is. Of course, to be on hospice, you have to have a terminal diagnosis. So I knew that was probably playing its, its role in her demeanor a little bit. One particular night, it was a Friday night, I, I went. This was at a time when I was single. I was divorced at the time, and the kids were with mom and uh it was just one of those nights. So on a Friday night, I went over at about 9 o'clock, and I sat with her until about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we just talked. Uh, she was in a great deal of pain, and she just held my hand and squeezed it every time she felt some kind of a pain tinge in her body. And the more she squeezed my hand, the more I felt something for her. You know, some kind, I wanted to do something for her. The most important part was is that she was very close to the end of her life and there was no one there to visit her. And that is what compelled me to want to stay. At several points, she'd say, honey, you don't need to stay here. You can go home to your wife and kids. And I'd say, I don't have one. Uh, you're, my only, you're my only family right now. And I have nowhere else I need to be except right here. This is where God has put me. And I want to be right here with you. And she said, well, that is so sweet, but things are going to get ugly, I'm afraid. And you may not want to be here. And I said, I think that's why I need to be here. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and she said, honey, are you sure there's nowhere else you need to go? And I said, are you sure that you even want me to be? Are you just trying to get rid of me? And she said, oh, no, I'm not trying to get rid of you. I just know that nobody would want to spend this much time with a person like me. And I said, Charlene, this is the one thing I've learned in life. Nobody, nobody deserves to die alone. And she says, well, for that, I'm thankful. And it was shortly after that she was medicated and fell asleep. And so I went home and I had a, a work to do the next morning. I forget what I was doing, where I was doing it, but I had to be somewhere. And in the afternoon, I saw that I had a, a phone call from the retirement home, from the nursing home saying that Charlene had requested that I hurry up and get there. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't make it, but I found out that she had passed shortly after that. And it bothered me, one, because nobody was there when she passed except for hospital staff. The other thing that bothered me was uh, when her daughter showed up. You know, at the, after the, the passing had occurred, uh, the whole family was disconnected from each other. 
and, and the daughter uh, questioned the hospital and said, my mom has never, ever stepped her foot in a church in her entire life. Why would she ask for the chaplain and not for her daughter? I wish I could answer that. A second story I want to tell you is one of of personal relevance. Is that this week, you know, Mama went to move to South Carolina. She used to be within a couple hours from us, but we took... I don't know about Paige. I can't put her in there. She went to visit a lot more than I did. But for me, I kind of took for granted the fact that she lives so close. But now that she's in South Carolina, it's um, it's going to be really difficult to, to go see her and to care for her. And that's really how, how families are these days, so, so geographically disconnected from each other. So naturally, these things bother me. These things, and I read these verses, they're convicting. And I read these verses, and they draw me in. And I read these verses, and it provokes me to want to change, to do something differently. And I'm hoping it does the same for you. You see, widows are very highly regarded throughout Scripture. God mentions three categories of people throughout the Old Testament. He, he talks about the, the children who are fatherless. He talks about aliens who have nowhere to go, and he talks about the widows. And he makes it very clear throughout the scriptures that if you mistreat these three groups of people, then you deserve to just really be kicked in the lower posterior. All right? That's not that's my version of the Bible, but that's what he says. Widows are very important to God. And it's not surprising then that when Jesus came onto the scene, that he also had a thing for widows. Uh, I think of the, the 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 widow from Nain whose son had died, and and they were carrying the body out to the Valley of Gehenna, where they would burn the bodies of the poor people, and and so they were getting ready to go and to burn this body, and Jesus stopped them, brought the boy back to life, and gave him back to the mother, and said, "Take care of your child." That doesn't surprise me, knowing how deeply God cares about widows, right? So that's not surprising. In Acts chapter 9, I, I would ask this question, because this was news to me, I thought about it. Other than Jesus, who, out, who throughout the New Testament seemed to have a thing for widows more than anybody else? Other than Jesus, does anybody have a guess? It's actually a woman by the name of Dorcas, whose original name was Tabitha. But in Acts chapter 9, it says this, that all of the widows stood around when Dorcas passed. All of the widows stood around crying and showing Paul the the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made for them while she was still alive. An interesting read. But she loved the widow so much, and Jesus showed up at her funeral and did an amazing work there as well. Widows are very special people, and I don't know if we do a good job of making you feel special. There's a thing about us, just to be honest, that we, we just trust that your families are doing their best to help you. And that's what the verses say, that if you have children and grandchildren to help you, then, then you should be good. But we also need to understand that sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes you need more. Sometimes you need different. And for that, we repent. 
There's really six different stories throughout the scriptures that talk about widows, and I want to highlight just four of them, and I'm not going to go into great deal about it. We're not going to be here forever. I promise you that. But to, just to talk to you a little bit about a couple of these stories, the first one is in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 10 through 16. This is the story of the widow of Zarephath. The person that we need to focus on is Elijah. And it says that God told him, God told Elijah, then this is during a period of three and a half years of drought that Elijah prophesied because God was punishing Israel and King Ahab, Jezebel, who were uh, afflicting the people and misteaching them how to do idol worship. There's a whole sermon in that. But God told him, I want you to go to the widow in Zarephath. She is going to feed you. Now understand that in that time, it was a little bit different. Women didn't work. They were wholly, wholly uh, dependent upon their husbands for, for support. And if a widow is a widow, that means that she has no support at home. And if she doesn't have children, she's really up a creek. What is she going to do? In this case, the widow of Zarephath had a little boy, but he wasn't capable of working yet. So for God to tell him, Elijah, go to Zarephath, and I want you to find this widow. She will feed you. I'm sure he was already thinking in his mind, this is not good. How could this possibly end well? But he's more of a man of God than I was. He probably didn't think that way. But it says that when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was getting going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. She replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. The jar, uh, the jar flour will, he says, the jar flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord that he gives rain upon this land. So we're in a situation where the widow is being tested. Her faith is being tested. And we see in this dear woman that she trusts God and she trusts the words of the prophet and she gives him the last bit of oil and flour that she has, the last meal for her and her son before they are to die. She gave it to the prophet. And then we have to see the faith of the prophet that he would even ask for this in the first place. But his faith in God, God told him, she's going to feed you. Now, what's amazing about the story is we don't see it in 1 Kings. We see it when we get to Luke uh, chapter 4, I believe. And, and Luke is the one who pronounces that the widow of Zarephath was from Sidon, meaning she wasn't even a Jew. She was a foreigner. And this foreigner had more faith than any of the others in the land of Israel. He had to go to a foreigner to get his meal. A couple supporting verses in Psalm 146, verse 9, it says, The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts. Now remember, religion is man-made. It's our personal view of who God is. This is our religion. 
that God accepts it as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what James is saying is, if you want God to be impressed with your acts of worship, your acts of faith, your acts of religion, or your religiosity, uh, then what you need to do is, is, is show yourself to be pure and thoughtless in the care of orphans and widows. If you can't do that, your witness to the world and to God is completely pointless. Page two. In Jeremiah 49, 11, the prophet says these words, Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive. Your widows, too, can depend on me. Those are the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. The second story I want to talk about is uh, Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. You know that Naomi and her husband were in Bethlehem, but there was a drought, and so they relocated to the region of Moab to get a fresh start, to start growing crops, because it's been raining there. When they go there, they have two sons. Both of those sons marry, Malon and Kilion. Both of those boys die. Her father, her husband dies. Naomi has lost all of the men in her life. She's not only a widow, but now she's childless. Naomi is a beautiful woman, but she is bitter in her spirit. One of the daughters, one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, says, you know what? I'm going to forsake all others, and I want to stick to you. I want to support you. I want to trust you. I want to lean on you. I want your God to be my God, your people to be my people. Basically, I'm stuck on you, and you can't get rid of me. So quit trying. Naomi was so blessed by this, still bitter in her spirit, but blessed that this woman would be willing to give up her whole life. She even said, honey, do you realize I'm not going to have any more children? And even if I did, it would be, what, 18 to 20 years before he would be able to be marrying age? And you're going to lose interest by then, so just don't lean on me. And she's like, that's not what I'm looking for. I want to take care of the widow. This moved God, I'm sure. Or maybe God knew what kind of woman she was. So what happens is they move back to Bethlehem when the opportunity arose. Ruth went with her. Ruth started gleaning the fields. Now to glean the fields is after the harvesters come through, they would deliberately leave the crumbs on the ground. And then the poor would, would canvas those fields and collect the leftovers. That's why in Deuteronomy 25, it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her, marry her, and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to her. If a brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel, that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. You have to read chapter 25 to understand what that's all about, but it's a huge insult. In Deuteronomy 24, this is what I meant to read first. It's a passage that explains that when your harvesters go through the fields, do not go back and make a second pass. Leave the leftovers for the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. When you pull your grapes off of the vines, do not make a second pass, but leave the remaining grapes for the fatherless, the aliens, the widows. When you go and you harvest, uh, whatever it is you harvest, leave the leftovers for the widows, the foreigners, the aliens. You see a pattern here. 
God cares for the aliens, the fatherless, the widow, or the, the aliens. Provide for them, in other words. If you want to impress God, provide for them. Naomi and Ruth moved back to Bethlehem where they met Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer of Naomi. And Boaz married Ruth, and they all lived happily ever after. Because Boaz had a heart for widows. A third story I want to show you comes uh, in Luke chapter 2. This, this is a story that, that when I first started reading it last night was really affecting me. It had a weird effect on me. The lady, the story is about a widow by the name of Anna. It says in 30, verse 36 or 38, there was a prophetess. Her name was Anna. Anna, by the way, in the Hebrew Old Testament would be Hannah. And if you want to go back and read about Hannah, good story. But Hannah was the father of Samuel, who had become one of the greatest prophets of Israel, who was barren and went to the temple and prayed and prayed and prayed that she would have a child. And Eli, the priest, thought that she was drunk, intoxicated because of how she was praying. Anna is a New Testament comparative to that. And it says that she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, very old, like 40 or something. No. <laughs> she had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 years old. Now, this is what's interesting. Actually, if you go back to the, the Greek and the Hebrew and you really investigate, it'll actually tell you that she was probably more likely a widow for 84 years, refusing to get remarried. It says that she never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, after he had been born, they come to the temple, and she greets them at the door. And at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I don't mean to step on toes, but I want to share something to you, which I, I know could be convicting. I heard a preacher uh, on the radio one day, and he was, saying, he was talking about people who are retired age or older than that even, people in the church who feel like, uh, I don't want to be here anymore. I wish God would just take me home. Have you ever known people like that? Why does God not take me home? I wish he would just take me home. The preacher said this, God's purpose for all of us or his plan for all of us is to live life abundantly. And it's insulting to God to get to the place of your life where you are bored with life, wanting to check out. God wants you to have abundant life. And when you're sitting there uh, complaining that he hasn't taken you and you don't want to be there, you don't want to share in the gospel, you don't want to do anything anymore, it's insulting to him. Anna set the example. She never retired. She went and she prayed and prayed and prayed. And when the child came, she went and became an evangelist and told everybody about this Jesus. And I've told people before, maybe you're in this nursing home so that you can witness to the staff or to other, other uh, patrons. Maybe you're, you're in a, in a, a place in this hospital where you can, you can witness to, to your roommate or to the staff or, or maybe to church members who come to visit you, assuming they come to visit you. 
you know, so we got to change this, this whole attitude, this whole, it's all about me thing. In Deuteronomy 25, no, not 25, I read that one. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, I read it a little bit ago. It says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, check. Showing hospitality, check. Uh, washing the feet of the saints, well, maybe not so much. Helping those in trouble, check. Devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds, check, check, check. Those are the ones we need to focus on. And I guarantee every widow has done some of that. And so they're, they're worthy of our, of our recognition. In Mark 12, it says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Uh, they had metal coffers. And I don't know if you know this story, but the reason they use metal coffers or offering plates is so that when you put your change in, it makes lots of noise. And they know historically that these people with lots of money would go and cash their bills into coins and go into the temple and throw their change so that it made this huge noise and everybody would turn and look and say, who's giving that huge offering? Of course, that drove Jesus nuts. This dear woman, uh, this poor widow, it says, comes and puts in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. God has a thing for widows particularly widows who love God and who do all they can to keep serving and keep supporting the church, his church, not our church, his church. The last story I want to share with you comes out of John chapter 19, a story I would think that a lot of you are familiar with, maybe not, but a lot of you will be. We know that when we get to chapter 19 of John, that Jesus is spending most of the time uh, nailed to the cross. I want to give you a clear taste of what, what moves Jesus, even from his death place, his deathbed. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing there, John, the disciple he loved, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, John, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home and cared for her as if it was his own mother. Jesus hanging on the cross, already beaten to death, already at the point where he can't breathe and already at the place where he's about to give up the ghost and give up his spirit to the Lord in his last ditch effort to do anything on this earth and to make his last final contribution, he looks at his mother and has, has pity on her and says, Mother, John will take you from here. And John, take my mother from here. I trust you. I love you. I know you'll take care of her. She, you, will, you, you will treat her like your own mother. I know this. And shortly after that, he died on that cross.
you know I don't have a very good relationship with my mom. I've been through years of counseling because of the way she raised me and the stuff she put me through. But my mother still deserves to have a son by her side as she gets closer and closer to the end of her path. I have tried and tried to justify not going to see her, not calling her, and just disconnecting from her. But God will not permit it. He keeps putting in in me this desire to go just one more time. Just go and sit by her. Just one more time. Go and hold her hand. Just one more time. Go and pray for her. Would you do it just one more time? And it's almost like every time I go, she still finds a way to slap me in the face. So why does God want me to go? Why is this so important? It's not for her as much as it is for me. It's not for me as much as it is for my witness to the rest of the world who doesn't have faith. They need to see people who have been hurt going back to their abuser and forgiving and loving them. And the whole world needs to see how we deal with our widows. They need to see the kind of love that we have for them, the ways that we support them, the ways we strengthen them. So I don't know about you, but um, usually when I pray for things like this, it uh, evolves around a little bit of confession and a whole lot of repentance. I don't know how good a job we do caring for our widows in the church. But this is what God is impressing upon me. If we really want to invest in the building and the development of our families and building our homes, then it's going to start with how we treat our ancestry, how we treat our parents, how we treat our grandparents, and for those in the church, how we treat those who don't have a whole lot to contribute anymore. We need to teach our kids how to do this. Now, I didn't know why we were doing this. I just felt like God said, hey, do this. So we got in the habit of taking the youth group to the retirement homes to visit our shut-ins. I didn't know what we were doing. I just thought we were giving them some service projects, you know, just trying to. But God's like, no, I'm the one who told you to do this because I want you to teach them how to care for these people. I want them to be able to put faces to their names. And when you talk about scriptures like this, I want them to remember those moments when we've been there and visited them, when we prayed for them, when they smiled and laughed. It's, it's amazing stuff what God can do. But we need to treat, we need to teach our kids how to really act like Christians. And so I pray that we will continue to do the best we can with what we have to work with. Let's pray. Father, ultimately, it's all about you. It's all about you. You are the one who puts the breath in our bodies. You're the one who numbers our days. You're the one who arranges these appointments for us to interact with people we don't know or perhaps people that we have distanced ourselves from. You are the God who redeems, the God who reconciles. You're the God who forgives, the God who forgets. You're the God who intricately puts us into weird places at the right time so that we can accomplish purposes that are way over our head. 
And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be a people who look forward to those moments, who continually pray for openings, who continually pray for reconciliation. Teach us, Father. Teach us the things that we can do to be a better witness in this world and to make somebody's life a little bit better than what it is. Help us, Lord, to love them. Just like you loved us. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our closing, which is, what hymn number is it? Well with my soul. Oh, it's on the word above. Never mind. (laughs) Just dis.
several times, so it wasn't you. 